Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times, a look at the book of Revelation. Over the past few weeks, we've been in Revelation chapter 2, looking at Christ's letters to the churches. We've looked at his letter to the church at Ephesus, at Smyrna, and at Pergamum. And today we will finish up Revelation chapter 2 with his letter to the church at Thyatira before continuing on into Revelation chapter 3. Probably doesn't come as news to anybody watching this that our society's views on sexuality have undergone tremendous change and transition over the past few decades, both within the church and outside the church. A few years ago, I remember reading a study in which 18 to 24 year olds were asked to, to rank sins based on how bad they thought they were. And a failure to recycle actually was seen as being a worse sin than any kind of sexual immorality. And while we often like to think that we are special in this regard, that we are undergoing something uh, unique in our culture's loosening of sexual morals, uh, of course we're not, and we only have to look in Scripture to see that. We like to think that the early church was this perfect model of what church should be, but of course even reading Paul's epistles, we find out how much error and sin uh, was rampant even in those first century churches that Paul constantly had to correct. And we see that again here in the church at Thyatira. So I'll follow along with me as I read Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame, and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say. I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Of these seven cities whose churches receive letters from Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3, Thyatira is the smallest of the seven cities. And though small, Thyatira receives the, lo the longest of the seven letters. And Thyatira was small in size, but it seems to have had a robust guild system, much like Pergamum. And in fact, the messages to the two cities, Pergamum, which we looked at last time, and Thyatira here this week, have a lot of similarities. And we even see this possible tie-in 
with the guilds and, and commercial interests and materialism, even in the book of Acts. We're in Acts 16, 14. In Paul's ministry, it says, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. And so Lydia was herself a merchant. She was a dealer in purple cloth, and apparently the, the guilds at Thyatira were selling this purple cloth to the other cities in the area. And so they had at least this, this guild that dealt in cloth, but it's also long been assumed that Thyatira, has also, that Thyatira also had an active smelting industry due to the fact that Jesus introduces himself with references to fiery eyes and bronze feet. Now, as we look at the letter here today, it is a longer letter. So although through the previous three, we've had one point. Today, we will have two. And the first point that we'll look at is that sexual immorality is spiritual infidelity. Sexual immorality is spiritual infidelity. Jesus opens up his letter as he has so far commending the church for something. And in verse 19, he says, I know your works your love, faithfulness, servants, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. Look at what Jesus praises the Thyatiran church for. Love, faithfulness, service, endurance. Apparently their love was such that it worked itself out in acts of service, and their faithfulness was such that it led to endurance. And not only did Jesus know their works of love, and faithfulness. He also knew that their last works were greater than their first. In other words, this church was apparently maturing in many ways. They were growing in love, growing in faithfulness, growing in service, growing in endurance. And by all means, it seems like the Thyatiran church was in some regards a healthy, growing church. It was an attractive church. In today's stereotypical terms, the love and service of the Thyatiran church would have attracted the younger millennial crowd, and the faithfulness and endurance of the church would have attracted the older baby boomer crowd. And so the church had a lot of good things going for it, but there was one big problem. And Jesus goes right into that in verse 20, where he says, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. The church at Thyatira had a very similar problem to the church at Pergamum. They were committing sexual immorality and eating meat sacrificed to idols. They too apparently were committing idolatry in order to preserve their standing in the city's trade guilds. The difference between Thyatira and Pergamum is the order in which those two sins were being listed. In Pergamum, the church was said to have eaten meat, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. But in Thyatira, they are committing sexual immorality and eating meat, sacrificed to idols. And it does seem like the reversed order is meant to emphasize which aspect of this idol worship was dominant within each church. Christians in Pergamum were participating in the worship of idols by attending the sacrificial feasts, which would have included sexual immorality. 
Christians in Thyatira, however, seem to have been actively frequenting the temple prostitutes, which then resulted in them sticking around to participate in the sacrificial feasts. And just like the church at Pergamum, Jesus brings up an Old Testament reference to describe what is going on in the church. He had said that the church at Pergamum had fallen under the teachings of Balaam, who taught Israel's enemies how to entice them into idolatry. The church at Pergamum had succumbed to outside pressure and influence. The city had exerted economic pressure and the church had caved to that pressure and begun to worship the emperor. The church at Thyatira, on the other hand, was guilty of tolerating the woman Jezebel. And if you remember your Old Testament back in 1 Kings, Jezebel was a foreign queen whose marriage to the Israelite king Ahab in the days of Elijah was influential in leading Israel further into idolatry and immorality. And 1 Kings 16.31 says, Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were not enough, Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and bow in worship to him. In fact, some manuscripts for verse 20, instead of saying the woman Jezebel, say your woman Jezebel, which has led to scholars speculating, though that's all it can be, that perhaps this woman in question was actually the wife of the church's pastor or bishop. That just as Ahab had committed an ill-advised marriage and therefore opened up his nation to all kinds of idolatry and immorality, that the pastor at the Thyatiran church had done the same thing, that he had married an outsider, he had married an unbeliever. And now this pastor's wife, this Jezebel, was leading the church, not by exerting outside pressure, but by teaching from within and leading the church into idolatry and sexual immorality. And so a woman outside the church, an unbeliever, had, who fancied herself a prophetess, had therefore infiltrated the church and claimed divine communication. It doesn't appear that the Thyatiran church had ever experienced the persecution that the church at Pergamum did. Rather, they had compromised preemptively that this Jezebel, this prophetess, had risen up in the church and convinced the church to compromise in their worship, to compromise in their sexual ethic in advance in order to stave off any oncoming persecution. And apparently by claiming to be a prophetess, she had claimed that God was good with this, that she had received a communication from God, that she had had an encounter with God, and that this message that God had given her for the church at Thyatira was that it was okay to commit sexual immorality. And it's possible she even used some of Paul's own reasoning against him. Again, we know from Paul's letters that Thyatira is not the only church that deals with this. But perhaps she tied in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, where Paul, in allowing the church to eat meat sacrificed to idols, as long it was not as long as it was not part of the festivals, said about eating food sacrificed to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. 
So Paul had argued that Christians could eat meat sacrificed to idols after the fact when it was on sale in the marketplace because the God the meat had been sacrificed to was really no God at all. And so perhaps Jezebel, this false prophetess, had come into the Thyatiran church and claimed that while well, temple prostitution was permissible because after all, the gods of the pagan temples, the gods that you are worshiping by sleeping with the temple prostitutes were no gods at all. Or perhaps she made the argument that even the Corinthian churches made in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, where Paul says, run from sexual immorality. And then what I think he's doing here, and I think the HCSB captures it, is he's quoting back the Corinthian church's argument. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. In other words, there is this faction of the Corinthian church who is saying, well, sins don't occur within the body, they're outside the body. And Paul says, on the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. And so Paul refutes this kind of thinking, but perhaps that's the same kind of thinking that Jezebel, the false prophetess, had brought up in the Thyatiran church. And perhaps there's another hint that this is actually what's going on in verse 24, where Jesus says, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. And it's possible that this reference to the so-called secrets of Satan reflects an early form of what eventually becomes a heresy in the church, which believe that the way that we show our victory, or perhaps more accurately, the way that we flaunt our victory over Satan is by participating in his deeds. Almost as though we show our confidence in our justification by participating in deeds that would otherwise damn us. And so the way that we, according to this heresy, the way that we show that we are in fact saved, that we are confident in our salvation, is by committing all kinds of sin that otherwise God would have condemned us for, if not for our salvation. And so it appears as though some in Thyatira were exploring all sorts of depravity under this guise of Christian freedom. And again, it seems to be that same kind of thinking that Paul had to combat in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 and 13, again, I think Paul's quoting back the Corinthian argument, everything is permissible for me. And Paul goes on to say, yes, but not everything is beneficial. Again, everything is permissible for me, but Paul counters, but I will not be mastered by anything. Then food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And so the church at Thyatira seems to have bought into the same lie that the Corinthian church bought into, and really the same church that the American, the same lie that the American church has bought into, and that many churches over the past two millennia have bought into. That sexual immorality is no big deal. That what matters is love and faithfulness, service and endurance. That as long as we are loving and faithful in public, then what we do in private is nobody's business, even God's. And yet notice that in spite of their love, faithfulness, service, and endurance, despite the fact that their last works were even greater than their first works, 
Jesus still tells them in verses 21 through 23, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Like the lack of love in the church at Ephesus and the compromise of truth in the church at Pergamum, sexual immorality in the church at Thyatira was something to be repented of. And if they failed to repent, then their reputation for love, faithfulness, service, and endurance, and even growth in those things would not save them. And I think that's one of the things that we're supposed to notice as Jesus says this, is that their love and faithfulness won't save them because their love and faithfulness aren't really all that great to begin with. That perhaps they had a reputation for things that weren't really there. Because sexual immorality might be characterized by a lot of things, but love and faithfulness are not among them. And so really their sexual immorality exposes, pun intended, their spiritual infidelity. But God, as he always does, gives plenty of time and opportunity to repent. But if this false prophetess and her followers would not repent, he would throw them on a bed and stricken them with affliction. The punishment, in other words, would fit the crime. Their bed of prostitution would become a bed of affliction. Their sex bed would become their sick bed. But even there, there would be an opportunity to repent. And if they refused to repent, even then, they would be stricken to the point of death. And it's not clear if Jesus here is speaking literally or metaphorically, if he's saying that they would get physically sick and die, or if he was saying that they were never really saved at all and therefore they would experience a spiritual sickness and death. Or it's possible that he intends that double meaning to be understood. But either way, the purpose for this judgment is so that all the churches will know that he is the one who examines minds and hearts and who gives to each according to their works. And when Jesus tells us that he is the one who examines minds and hearts, that who gives each according to their works, he is first of all asserting his right to judge. And this is shown even in how he addresses himself to the church at Thyatira. As the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. This Jezebel, this false prophetess, was claiming a special word from God. But Jesus reminds the church that he is the Son of God. And as the Son, it is he, not she, who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. What is permissible and what isn't. What God is okay with and what He's not. And he gets to decide that both by his relationship to the Father and by virtue of the authority given him by the Father. He says that he is the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. Those fiery eyes speak to his ability to see, as he says in verse 23, even down to the minds and hearts of people while his bronze feet speak to his judgment of and battle against all that which opposes him. 
And if we're being honest with ourselves in the 21st century American church, we really are often tempted to think the way the church at Thyatira was thinking. We speak and act often as though it's our soul and spirit that really matters and not our body. That as long as we put on the facade of love and faithfulness, that God doesn't really care what we're doing behind closed doors. That as long as we're going to church on Sunday, as long as we're getting up and reading our Bible in the morning, that as long as we're praying every morning when we wake up and every night before we go to bed, that as long as we're singing some praise songs throughout the week or going on a missions trip, that that's enough. That God's going to overlook all that bad stuff we're doing as long as we're doing enough good because it's the spiritual things that really matter. Or perhaps we're even tempted to think that God understands the tough position that we're in and is willing to overlook those compromises that we make. And in response to all that kind of thinking, Jesus reminds us that he examines our minds and our hearts. I often tell the men of the colony of mercy here in my teaching and my counseling to make sure that we understand that God judges motives and that we, of all the people that we lie to, we lie to ourselves the most. And we might be able to fool ourselves into thinking that we sin with the best of motives. We might fool other people into thinking that we sin with the best of motives. But we cannot fool God. God is not mocked. He knows that our compromises are really just our desire to gratify our flesh and that they are ultimately a lack of faith and trust in him to provide and protect us. And then Jesus says, knowing their minds and their hearts, knowing their motives, that he will give to each one according to our works. And at this If you're sitting watching this at home, I hope your ears perk up at this verse. Because they should. Because if we know the gospel, then right now when we read Jesus saying, I'm going to give you according to your works, we should immediately think, well, doesn't the gospel promise just the opposite? That we aren't judged according to our works. That we're judged according to Christ's work instead. And that's precisely the point that Jesus is making. What Jesus is ultimately saying is that if we will continually and unrepentantly deny the gospel with our lives, that in the end, he will treat us as we've insisted on being treated. That if we will continually deny the gospel, then he will deny us. He will give us, if we want to live according to our works, he will give us the reward of our works. Paul makes this point as well in Romans 6 where Paul is preaching the gospel of grace and whenever the gospel of grace is preached it should very much sound in our hearts like a license to sin because that's how beautiful grace is and Paul knows that that's immediately where our sinful hearts run to immediately what our sinful minds think of that grace means we can keep sinning and he says in Romans 6 verses 1 through 2 what should we say then should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply absolutely not How can we who died to sin still live in it? What Jesus is demanding from the church at Thyatira is not perfection, but repentance. 
He doesn't expect Christians in Thyatira or Christians in 21st century America to live completely completely without sin. But what he does expect is that when confronted with sin, that we will repent of it, relying on the very gospel that we claim to believe. And that ultimately is why sexual immorality is spiritual infidelity. Because it's a denial of the gospel. It's an insistence on living life on our own terms. It's a denial of Christ's sovereignty over the most private and intimate part of our lives. And again, as I said last week, I'll reiterate this week, Jesus is not talking about someone who's struggling to get out of sexual bondage, someone struggling with sexual sin, but someone who is actively, consistently insisting that he has every right to continue living in sexual immorality. And the gospel lays no claim on that aspect of their lives. And so sexual immorality is spiritual infidelity. That's our first point. Our second point is that my satisfaction and significance are found in my Savior, not my sexuality. My satisfaction and significance are found in my Savior, not my sexuality. The letter to Thyatira is unique in that Jesus speaks not just to the unfaithful faction in the church, but to the faithful faction as well. In verses 24 through 29, he says, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And Jesus encourages this faithful faction in the Thyatiran church first by saying he's not adding to their burden. And this is the same language used as we saw last week in the letter to the church at Pergamum that the Council of Jerusalem had come up with in Acts chapter 15 when they told Gentile Christians that they did not have to convert to Judaism in order to be Christians, but merely they had to abstain from eating meat sacrificed to idols and from sexual immorality. In other words, there was no burden put on them other than to give up their idols. And Jesus then encourages them to hold on to what they have until he comes. The faithful Christians in Thyatira would have been the ones suffering according to worldly measures. The unfaithful ones were succeeding. And the temptation for the faithful Christians to just go ahead and compromise to go ahead and sleep with the temple prostitutes, to go ahead and participate in the feasts and the festivals and the false worship in order to keep their jobs and the guilds, in order to keep their status in society, in order to be able to feed their families, must have been great as they saw people coming into church on Sunday morning standing next to them who had compromised all throughout the week and yet were standing there on Sunday morning as members of the church. And Jesus encourages this faithful faction to hold on because he's coming. And to the one who holds on, Jesus promises two things. First, that they will rule with him. 
He quotes Psalm chapter 2, the psalm which identifies the Messiah as the Son of God, which is quoted elsewhere in the New Testament in reference to Jesus, and says that those who endure, those who overcome, will rule the nations with him. They will serve in the role that Adam and Eve were meant to serve. They will be God's regents as we were designed to be here in the created order. Paul says something similar in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, where he says, This saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And we might look at these verses in 2 Timothy and think that Paul's contradicting himself, that if we deny him, he will also deny us, contradicts if we are faithless, he remains faithful. But really, Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus is saying. Denying Christ and being faithless to Christ are two different things. Paul and Jesus are both saying that a denial of the gospel will result in being denied, but mere unfaithfulness to the gospel will be covered by God's faithfulness. There is a difference between falling into sin and repenting of that sin and holding on to the gospel to cover that sin and just insisting that I have the right to do whatever I want and I don't care what God or his word says, I am living in sin. The one is faithlessness. The other one is denial. And so it is denial that results in being denied. But mere faithlessness is covered up by God's faithfulness. And the result of this persevering in the gospel, which again, persevering in the gospel is not walking in perfection. It is falling on the gospel every time we fall. It is saying that, yes, I am a sinner, but God's grace is enough for my sin. And so, like the message to Pergamum last week, the message to Thyatira this week reminds us that we need not compromise our faith in order to be accepted by the political or economic elite because we are accepted by Christ himself. And because we are accepted by him, one day we will reign with him, an experience which will far outweigh any lack of political power or economic influence in this life. Sitting at Jesus' side, ruling the created order is so much greater than having access to the Oval Office today. As the early church liked to say, what Jesus is communicating is really that the Son of God became a Son of Man so that the sons of man might become sons of God. But then the second promise that Jesus gives is that the one who endures will receive the morning star. And we don't have to wonder what the morning star is because the book of Revelation tells us what the morning star is. Way at the end of the book, in chapter 22, verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. In other words, the one who endures gets Jesus. And by saying that we get the morning star, Jesus is really saying two things. First, he's reiterating that we will one day reign with him. 
Grant Osborne points out that the Roman legions carried Venus, the morning star, on their banners as a symbol of Roman sovereignty and goes on to say that the point would be that true sovereignty and power lay with Christ and his followers, not with Rome and its armies. And so Jesus is reminding us that we do not need fear retaliation from the political or economic forces of our day because we serve the true sovereign and will one day reign with him. But what is more is the second point that Jesus is making by saying that he, we will receive the morning star. And that is that we have relationship with him. We receive him. New Testament scholar Leon Morris on this passage said the ultimate reward of the Christian is to be with his Lord. That is the promise of all of scripture. That is the end of the gospel that God is reconciling all things to himself. He is restoring what he had created at the beginning where he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. And this idea that our ultimate prize is relationship with God is throughout scripture. And one of my favorite verses where this comes up is from the book of Lamentations. And of course, we, we all know a few verses from Lamentations chapter 3 where the author says, Great is your faithfulness and your mercies are new every morning. And yet the book of Lamentations doesn't turn on those verses. It turns immediately after that in chapter 3, verse 24, where the author of Lamentation says, I say, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. What made the author of Lamentations turn from despair to hope wasn't just that God's faithfulness is great, wasn't just that God's mercies are new every morning, but that God was his portion, that God's great faithfulness was directed to him. He wasn't just faithful, he was faithful to him. His mercies weren't just new every morning, they were new every morning for him. God is his portion, therefore he has hope. And that is the same thing that we can say. It is not just great is your faithfulness, but it is great as your faithfulness to me. It's not just your mercies are new every morning. It's that your mercies are new every morning for me. The reason why we can have hope, the reason why we can have certain comfort in uncertain times is because God is our portion. Because those of us who endure receive Jesus as our prize. Ultimately, what Jesus is reminding the church at Thyatira, that what he's reminding us in 21st century America, is that a relationship with him is far more satisfying than an affair, than a glance at pornography, than a one-night stand. Jesus never asks us to abstain from sin for abstinence's sake, but rather because he has something far greater in store for us if only we would endure, and that is himself. The ultimate prize is Jesus. It is not sexual fulfillment. It is not gratifying the desires of the flesh. It is not maintaining our relationship with the political parties or the state. It is not ensuring that we have access to the Oval Office or the right judges on the Supreme Court. The ultimate prize is Jesus. 
And so just like the church at Thyatira, whatever sin we are struggling with this week, whether it's sexual immorality or something else, Jesus calls us to repent and turn from it, not so that we might be empty, but rather so that we might be filled, so that we might experience the abundant life that he has come to bring us, that we might experience him living in us and through us in perfect fellowship. Thank you for joining us for another week in Revelation, looking at the church at Thyatira, and come back next week as we look at Revelation chapter 3 and continue on in Christ's letters to the churches.